Hi, I'm Marcus, and I support Gen X Grown Up through Patreon. You can too by visiting patreon.com slash genxgrownup. Gen X Grown Up is a YouTube channel website and audio podcast you're listening to right now. All made for and by people who love exploring media, games, tech, and toys of yesterday and today through the eyes of Gen Xers who refuse to grow up. Your dinner cannot just be french fries. Basically, life sucks as a grown up. Welcome back, Gen X Grown Up Podcast listener, to this backtrack edition of the Gen X Grown Up Podcast. I'm John. Joining me as always is Mo. Hey, everybody. And George. Hey, how's it going, guys? The backtrack is, as you probably know by now, the episode where we pick a single nostalgic topic from our youth growing up generation Xers and dig in deep. In this episode, before iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, anything like that, the promise of cheap music was delivered right to your mailbox. <laughs> cheap and convenient. Well, as convenient as snail mail could be. The deal seemed almost too good to be true, but uh-huh. it was a viable business model for decades. We're going to look back on mail order record clubs in this backtrack. Before we jump into that, we have some fourth listener email that I always enjoy reading here okay, at the top on. of the show. That's a bigger woohoo. That one oh, I like bigger, more. Bigger for fourth listener email. Got yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this episode, we once again have someone who believes that George is correct. And oh, God damn right. It is Matthew. <laughs> Matthew wrote in with the subject line, Weird Al Top 10. Uh-oh. So, okay, before you even get into it then, All right. can you two just agree Gloat. that you Gloat. two were wrong? Because no. everybody now is agreeing that I was right about Weird Al Top 10. Uh, we'll see what Matthew has to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come so, on. Let's see So Matthew writes in and says, well, I will start by saying I love the show and my assistant is forced to listen whenever we're driving to job sites. It's growing on him, I like to think. <laughs> I hope he doesn't get an HR incident over this. He's it depends on what you say, George, probably. <laughs> George was correct. The Saga Begins should have been on the list. Mm-hmm. While John and Mo mm-hmm. have very good arguments for not giving any points to it, but the fact that your fans of Weird Al should have merited at least a single point to make the list, even if it was a low spot. Yeah, yeah I guess so. Yeah. Still, not a fan, so that's okay. I will point out one thing. Okay. Mo was a new ish fan to Weird Al yes. when we did this. Yes, it was. He's largely blameless, but I'm yeah, still I'm not, at fault. I can't okay. blame Mo at that point. I mean, he's still wrong now, and he's still holding to that, and that's okay. In hindsight, you know, okay. Mo. You're just being stubborn. But John is absolutely the worst offender of any yeah. Weird Al fan I've yeah, ever John. seen to not put wow. the saga on the list. That's crazy. It's starting to sound that way. It really is. <laughs> Matthew goes on to say, the tidbit about him not knowing fully what the movie was about when he wrote the song unbelievable both my assistant and i were shocked to find this out i love the song it has special memories attached to it for me because while on vacation in new hampshire my brother and i got tickets to see weird al or the violent femmes and we chose to see weird al ah, Good choice. smart choice i like this guy <laughs> yep uh, had we known he was touring and would be in our hometown in a few weeks we would have seen the violent femmes but we saw him and loved every minute of the show he did in fact end the show with the saga begins which had <laughs> just come out and the best part of the show was the encore performance of fat i can't wait to see him mm. when he comes to town in the coming months. Cool. He wraps up by saying, all that said, I really do love the show. We'll be getting my Patreon donation started soon. My wife and I are watching every penny in hopes of buying our house for a family very soon. Oh, Understandable. Nice. Yep. Congratulations good and good luck. Absolutely. Yep. Congrats. Yeah, that's that's an undertaking. Yeah. More important than us, that's for sure. <laughs> I will say again, just to make sure it was said twice, George was correct. <laughs> you didn't want to read that, did you? Not a lot. I could tell. Not, not much. <laughs> 
Thank you. And forever a fourth listener, Matthew. Way to go, Matthew. Yeah, he offered me 20 bucks to read it, and I said oh, no. <laughs> it's not even worth it. Like, there's no dollar amount that would make you read that, is there, Mo? No. <laughs> and I, I had to read the whole thing and said twice that George was right in there. Now I've said it a third mm. time. Damn it. Yes. Yeah, it's, the evidence is starting to mount that maybe the preponderance of people would agree with George. So it's, yeah. we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. What the evidence do you have to the contrary? I want a bigger sample set before we make a decision on this. You want a bigger yeah. sample site? Jesus, it's every email we've gotten on this subject. Yeah, I know. Well, what you don't know, Mo, is there like, there's like five more emails in the hopper all saying the same oh. thing. It's really sad. <laughs> I'm just eager for them to run out so we can get back to George's wrong. We pretend those didn't exist and we'll just move on. I just want the people who listen to the podcast who maybe haven't written in before or maybe have but are thinking about writing no, it no, just keep writing that no, same email don't solicit over and over more again. of them i just <laughs> i just want this to become the reoccurring oh my listener email okay. from now on george is it's... right about weird al I, I love you guys thank you so much <laughs> despite the fact that george was right we do thank you matthew for writing in we always love it <laughs> when the fourth listener takes time to write into the show if you would like your email read here on the show and if you have something to say other than George is right. We would certainly appreciate <laughs> hitting us up podcast at genxgrownup.com. We'd love to read them right here. We'll put you in the hopper. You make the show as well. Yeah, I think if you actually sent in an email that George isn't right, that may might go to the top of the list. Randomly just appear at the top, right? <laughs> yeah, just all of a sudden, just to offset. Mm -hmm. I think that it's fair. It's really just equal coverage. Yeah. It's I'm both starting sides. to think that the fact that John controls the inbox is not very problematic fair. for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Having had some fourth listener email read, it is time to get into the meat of this backtrack right after this. Get 11 albums for only $1 when you join the Columbia Record and Tape Club. Terrific? Well, I'm about to tell you how to go this offer one better. To get your 12 records or tapes for only $1, all you do is look for the secret gold box. This one, right on the savings certificate. Secret? You bet. You see, there's no explanation. Just the gold box. It will mean a thing to anyone who hasn't seen this commercial. Inside the box, write the number of the additional record or tape you want as a bonus gift. This is a backtrack we have had on our list for quite a while. It actually stemmed from Facebook. We posted a funny, amusing, nostalgic stuff on there. And one of the things I posted was a picture of a Columbia House <laughs> mailer. Wow. Oh, the big unfolding thing with the little yeah, album art right, covers it, and, and stuff, it, it, right? It looks like stacks and stacks and stacks of cassettes and eight tracks with the names of an artist, you know, on it with a giant banner that says, get eight records for penny. a penny. Eight for a penny. Mm -hmm. And people really reacted to that and resonated. I'm like, you know, that's a whole thing that we should do a backtrack about. And so we finally got around to it here. So let's start by assuming that not everyone is a Generation Xer who participated in these. So let's set the stage. So pre-internet, no iTunes, no iPod, early Walkman maybe, even I might have even predated Walkman. It did. It oh, did. it did. Yeah, pre-cassette for sure. Yeah. You yeah. got records by predominantly go to the store, yeah, record stores. go to the record store, Yeah, talk mm -hmm. to somebody face to face. All of a sudden, this cropped up seemingly out of nowhere. We'll talk about where it came from. We started getting these things in our snail mail inbox, physical uh, down at the end of the street. And you open it up from Columbia House Records or BMG Records or whoever it is. And they were offering you this outlandish deal, like eight records for a penny, 10 records for a penny, 12 yeah. records for a, for a penny. Yeah. Later, a dollar it evolved. But the point is, it was a ton of music that would just be shipped directly to you for next to nothing. And it seemed too good to be true. Mm -hmm. hey, good stuff, too. It was like current stuff, yeah. like yeah. cutting edge, recent release stuff. And I'm like, well, 
hell, this is a hell of a deal. And the catch was, very slightly over time, you had to agree to buy X number more records at the regular price, I'm right. using air quotes you can't see, over the next X amount of time. Right. Yep. And they would send you so many of them each yeah, month. And if you sent them back, you didn't pay for them. But at some point, you were going to come to a reckoning where you had to meet that, I have to buy so many in a year. And if you waited till the last mailing, you were just stuck with whatever the hell You're that was. You're stuck with it. That's right. Because you agreed, and whatever the term was, it was a, a year, two years or whatever, you'll buy X number. And the, the bigger catch we'll talk about even further was, it was an opt-out model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like they sent you the catalog every month and you picked one you wanted. They were going to send mm-hmm. you something unless you yep. returned a, a, like a postcard that said, no, not this yeah. time. And being procrastinators and attention span problem people that we are, invariably you didn't. And so you ended up buying a record for more than it was worth, like 21 or $23 instead of the 17 or $18. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing, right? It was cover price through them as opposed to what you would get at your local record store. At a discount which store. Yeah. Invariably like four five dollars off there and you could just go and pick up whatever you wanted but this thing they shipped it to you but it was cover price and there was that extra shipping and handling fee on top oh, of yeah, it oh yeah 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 so i forget that oh yeah the shipping and handling right <laughs> they wouldn't refund that part if you sent it back oh no problem. no uh-uh we would find these first in just about, I mentioned direct mailing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't know how they got my mailing address, but <laughs> by golly, they did. And everybody else on the planet, I think, was were getting these. So direct mailings was a big deal. You would also see these in magazine, the inserts that you would see, sometimes more than one of them, every single magazine. I remember you open your magazine and like a cascade of things fall out of it, all these promotional ads. And right. half of them were usually for the Columbia House. Yeah. I just loved how they did that format. I don't know if it was the same what you guys saw, but the one that we would always get get here at the house, either in the mailbox or the magazines. It was that big unfolding posterish kind of device yeah, that had yep, the cover yep. art on it. But <laughs> each cover was like a stamp. You had to stick them on the thing. You know, separate yeah. it out from the perforation and then stick it right. in the slots. It was arts and crafts. Yeah. It was cool. It was. Yes. So as a little kid, when I got that, I remember multiple times picking out the covers that I thought were good. I didn't know nothing about music at that point. I was like nine years old or something. Uh-huh, right. And I would just pick out the covers that looked interesting and cool to me so invariably i was sticking like acdc up there and my <laughs> those were cool would, covers oh, yeah what, you can have what that. is that Boy. that was <laughs> never going to be a thing that they were going to buy for me because they didn't trust that i knew what i was choosing but it was fun to just play with the mailers it was they knew what they were doing the fact that it was colorful and it was fun to look mm-hmm. at if you would just play with it i mean they're basically hooking you it's like a cigarette yep. company with joe camels like the kids are going to love this and as soon as they can make up their own mind they're going to end up buying from columbia house and and damn it, we did. It worked. If we yeah. came to a choice of like having to write something out or just taking a stamp on it, the stamp's so much easier. Yep. No one wants yep. to write anything. Yeah. Make it easy, make it fun, and you're going to sell a ton. And as you're going to see in a second, they did. Oh, yeah. That may be a catchphrase that they had in their offices. Make it easy, make it fun. We're going to make a ton. We're going to make a ton. <laughs> That's, that it all goes said. <laughs> Columbia House as a brand, it was a division of CBS Incorporated for a mail order music club, the primary incarnation of which, as we said, was the Columbia Record mm-hmm. Club. That actually was established in 1955. Wow. Yeah, man. Yeah, it had a significant market presence in the 70s, as I mentioned, in the 80s and in the 90s. We talked about what we were accustomed to, the big sheet of pick, you know, 10 or 12 records right. for a penny. Initially, if you joined the club, you got one free record. You know, I remember they seemed to carry that thing forward in the ones that I looked at because you had the 10 for a penny, but then you could somehow, because you did something by a certain date, you could get bonus ones. Yeah. Yeah, they often had secrets. Or like if you watch, if you saw the TV advertisement, they would yeah. say, now here's a secret. If you find this 
red box in the corner, you'll get an extra one for free. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, I remember that too. Damn. <laughs> so to appease brick and mortar stores, titles in the club's catalog were only made available six months beyond their retail release at first. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. So it was like HBO getting a film. They yep, had to yep. wait a certain period of time before they Or think they about could... like when uh, when VHS came along. Remember you had to wait like a while right. before it would, it would hit the shelves. Right. Uh, later that got reduced to three months after retail release and retailers that helped recruit members, they would get a 20% commission for cutting their own throats and what? driving people to the Columbia House. Yeah. <laughs> they were working both ends of the table. Wow. Yeah, that's not something I'm doing. <laughs> right. If you lead someone to, don't buy from me, buy from them. But I mean, again, <laughs> Again, it was a promotion that worked. Well, you got to think about who's doing the recruiting. Actually, though, I can understand from a retail's perspective how a retailer might think that was a good idea. Margin on records at that point in the 60s, 70s couldn't have been more than 35, 40 percent at the retail level. If you take out your overhead of that, then that's going to drop it down to close to 20 percent of net profit. So ah. we can give you 20 percent for doing the same thing and you don't have to purchase the inventory up front. So you don't have any Let risk. them do the legwork. Huh. Okay. Man. That could be, I could see that happening. George, that's why we keep you around for your business acumen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it was a good idea because they're not thinking long term how their customers are going to stop coming into the store, but I could see how a person who wasn't thinking long term might get seduced by that proposal. Okay. Ultimately, they said more than 125,000 members purchased more than 700,000 records for a 1.1 wow. million dollar net mm. net not gross net wow man that was their first year wow. that was year one <laughs> that was in year the 50, one 1955 the operation grew so quickly that in 1956 the next year they moved from Terre Haute Indiana to New York City to a railway accessible city where Columbia had recently opened a record pressing facility because it was growing so wow. damn fast yeah so within another year the club had over 600,000 members and had sold 7 million oh, records 14.8 million net did they have that many records back then good lord yeah it's not not about how many different titles they had. It's how many times they could press them. It's volume. Yeah, really. I mean, they may have only had on those mailers. I think they may have only had Couple 25 hundred, to 50 no. listings of the stamps. Yeah, I don't know really? that they okay. had 100. Maybe it was, but it didn't feel we like 100, but I was though, young. Right? So what do I know? Yeah, it, early, probably 25 ones, to sure. 75. Yeah. yeah, the early ones. The ones that I got when I was a little kid. But it's not hard to sell 7 million of that when you're talking about the entire population of the United States getting those flyers. Mm-hmm. The only hard thing is how quickly can you print them and send them out? Inside of 10 years, by 1963, they commanded 10% of the recorded music retail market. That's huge. Wow. It, I mean, that's wow. iTunes caliber. Yeah, that's, that's massive. That's beyond early iTunes. I mean, iTunes took a while to get off the ground. This like took off like hotcakes. It just was astronomical. So Columbia House, are they part of Columbia Records? Yeah, all, it's all under CBS. Okay, well, that makes sense then. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's why the net is so high because... It's their stuff that they're producing. They're not paying the artist crap. We already have talked about that multiple times. Mm -hmm. So it's all pure profit. That's why the net was so high. Damn. In the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that they cut corners even more. They were doing some of their own record pressing that weren't even the same records that came out in the stores to save even pennies more. Jeez. Hmm. It's baffling to me now to think about in this day and age, this is just a mode of selling that's not going to happen anymore. You know, we have the internet we have now, we have Amazon, we have iTunes, and shit, I mean, buy music anymore. Yeah. It's just, it's all streaming through my Spotify. Right. But there was a time when this was a super viable market 
$14.8 million net in 1956. Get out wow. of here. Yeah, I mean, the script is flipped. It, it was. We were buying everything that way because that was the way to get volume. And now we don't have to buy anything because the volume comes to us for free. Did you know you have a magic mailbox? Well, you do. And one day, very soon, a whole fantastic music collection will come flying out. Top of the chart hits, country tunes, easy listening favorites, your choice. Up to 12 great albums, all yours without paying a penny when you join the Columbia Record and Tape Club. So watch your magic mailbox for this Columbia envelope. Or look for Columbia's comparable offer in these January magazines or the new TV guide. We've established that Columbia Records was making money hand over fist. Mm-hmm. And they weren't the only one. We'll talk about some of their uh, contemporaries as well. But I always wondered, how in the world are these people making money? And so I looked into that to find out how the hell did they make money? So I want to start with, there's a quote from a, a writer for The New Yorker named Sasha Ferrer-Jones. Most times when you're trying to get somebody to buy something, you're actively trying to get them to go and buy the thing even if now it's clicking or subscribing and subscription. Mm -hmm. Columbia House had this brilliant, perverse method, which was you sign up, then all you have to do is tell us not to send you things. And if you don't remember that, we're going to sell you something and you're going to have to pay for it. Yeah, you know what that is that in modern era, right? What is that? That's free trial. Oh, it is kind of free trial. You talked about a free free trial you got in on and before you know it, you're charged. It's grammarly. You forgot to tell me that you aren't going to use the service anymore. Here's your yearly charge of X amount of dollars. Yeah. And that's what every streaming service does now. That's what every, you know, subscription service does almost. I mean, the only thing that didn't didn't do that were really the mystery crates because they had upfront costs that they had to recoup Hmm, as they were starting out. Yeah, you don't get a free one. But digital content is easy to do that with. It also kind of reminds you of the subscribe and save. Oh, you buy paper towels. We're going to send it to you every single month. Oh, the Amazon. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. If you need paper towels every month, subscribe. Yeah, it's similar. Yeah. This was a term I'd never heard before, but so the underlying model for Columbia House was a setup known as the negative option billing. Mm-hmm. That's another term for lost leader. Ah, okay. Yeah. So basically, once you sign up for membership in a club or service, you start getting monthly shipments unless you expressly say, don't send me no. And of course, yeah. you get the bill for along with that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's just like, you know, a retail brick and mortar business. They have what they call lost leaders, things that they sell at such a ridiculous price that it forces you to come into the store. They stick that thing at the very back of the store. So you walk past all, ah, the, other all stuff the other stuff that okay. you might be willing to purchase while you're there. Hmm. Okay. It sounds like a scam to me. It sounds like a pyramid scheme. And actually, it's illegal in parts of Canada and has been for a decade or more. Really? But it's still legal in the United States that you can do that kind of reverse billing. That's legal. Now, the fact that it's illegal some places tells you that it's kind of tastes kind of scammy because it's it kind of it's like it's a gotcha. But as long as it's legal, that's what they continue to do and continue to recruit new members using that. Well, it is slimy. It's it's almost car salesman. (laughs) That's the term I'm looking for. It's slimy. It, It is very much that way. I mean, but it's one of those things where if you're on the other side of it, you're on the Columbia House side of it, you can say, well, look, we were upfront and truthful about what was going to happen. We told you we were giving you these things for a penny, which we did. Mm -hmm. We told you we were only going to charge you for shipping and handling, which we did. We told you that you had X amount of time to purchase X amount of records from us Mm -hmm. in order to receive that first batch for a penny. That was what you agreed to, and therefore you should not have any room to complain. Now, we all know that 
what they're preying on is, is your human nature. lack of follow through and your right. memory and everything else. Like they're, oh, they're, yeah, human they're nature. They're counting right. on the negative aspects of human nature, right? That people will forget. But what business doesn't take advantage of human nature? But this one really, that's really taking advantage of right. it. Right. What is advertising yeah. after all <laughs> that preying on human nature, right? right? <laughs> yeah. I agree that maybe it could be slimy. I don't agree with Canada that it should be illegal, though. It's definitely not a pyramid scheme. Right. It's not a lie. It's just, yeah. it's, it's really preying on 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 your your lesser sensibilities isn't it yeah these are gone now by the way thanks to the internet and all the things that we talked about but as late as 2000 columbia house and bmg who at the time were not the one entity following this model together were grossing one and a half billion with a b dollars a year wow yeah even with the negative option billing bringing in cash from club members who forgot to turn the rejection forms columbia house operated on a tight tight margin despite that i gotta imagine too it's not just the U.S. market, right? We we get so honed in on what yeah, get the blinders on. Yeah. Why would it work in the U.S.? But there were probably plenty of markets that they could branch out into the world. You know, in the fifties, maybe not, but now in the two thousands, for sure. Yeah, they could send this model to other countries that maybe weren't as informed or didn't have the same infrastructure that we have in this country to get things. So I could see how this could continue to work up until that point. Both Columbia and BMG, I mentioned, they had some clever ways to save even more cash and save. Some some pennies per. So until 2006, record companies had never actually secured written licenses to distribute the records they sent to club what? members. Like rights from the artists, you mean? Yeah. Wow. How did no artist ever sue them? Instead, the club saved the hassle and expense by paying most publishers 75% of the standard royalties set by copyright law. So they didn't make arrangements. They just, they just said, you know what? We're going to pay you this flat legally what we have to do. And it's enough to keep you quiet. They argued that since the publishers were cashing their discounted checks, they were basically tacitly agreeing. Right. We're not going to make an agreement with you. We're going to send you what you think you're owed. The fact that they were cashing it. And if you accept it. An implied agreement. It was, like, it was like they wrote in the memo field. Cashing this check implies that you agree to <laughs> right. let us yes. do this. <laughs> right. If you click agree on the internet today, then you right. agree to our entire terms of service. And that you worked for read them. read our EULA license. Yeah. That's the problem. Now, music publishers did not love this arrangement. That's probably. But they probably made <laughs> boatloads of money. Yeah. Right? Boatloads of money that they didn't have any experience. For. But it could have been more. Right. I mean, they didn't have to press yeah. the records. Yeah. They didn't have to do any of the marketing. Yeah. So even though they weren't super fond about it, for decades, it was pretty tough to fight back against the mail order clubs because they were some of the biggest retailers and they held enormous power over the music market. So if you piss them off, maybe they don't distribute your records at all. Yeah. And those 10 million albums sold that you got a 75% check for, now you get like 500,000 albums sold. Because you don't get that line of distribution. It's like today, mm-hmm. if like you piss off Walmart, like you sell something like- Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Right. I sell brooms. And you're like, well, you're going to sell brooms for this price to Walmart. And if you say no, Walmart goes, fine, we won't carry it. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. And you don't make the sales. It's right. almost like they were they were the Walmart of their day. Like they could strangle the market with their dominance. Yeah, that's how Walmart forced Coke and Pepsi into a price war to be on their shelves. I mean, the Walmart is just that big. <laughs> Get this, it keeps going. On top of paying a reduced fee to publishers, they often weren't buying their records from the labels and selling them. Instead, get this, Columbia and like clubs would acquire the master tapes and record and press their own copies on the cheap. How do they get the master tapes? Yeah, that's got to be They're some Walmart. kind of illegal. They're the behemoth. They're able to acquire it. I don't know how. It, it seems to me, why would you do that? But it was, yeah. I imagine they're like, well, if you don't do this, we're not going to carry it at all. We're not going to sell it. Yeah. 
Jeez. Something I never realized until, again, researching for this show was that quite possibly the records I got for cheap from Columbia House were not, were the not exactly the same one you would have got going to the store. Right. Huh. Yeah. Yep. And, and to top it off, clubs generally didn't pay any royalties on the records they gave away as bonuses or free. If you said this one's free, anyone they could write off as, I said, oh, look for the red the box. for a penny extra, or whatever. Yeah. Right. yeah. So anyone you could figure is free, they didn't pay royalties at all on. So it further reduced mm, their cost. Wow. Genius. I mean, you couldn't do it today. Yep. But genius. I mean, evil genius, but genius. <laughs> yep. Now, George, this calls back to what you were talking about. And I'm really curious to see what you think about this from your business background. All right. So in the end, all these little factors saved a ton of money. So there was a 2004 book called The Recording Industry. And in that book, they took a look at the economics of these clubs. He estimated that the cost to the clubs of a free disc was about $1.50. Okay. okay. And while a disc sold at full price from the club, anywhere from $3.20 to $5.50, their actual cost. He did the math and realized that even if only one of every three discs a club distributed sold at the $16 list price, the club would still end up making a margin of around $7.20 on each sold disc. Wow. That's like almost 50% profit. Yeah, it's 42%, something like that. Yeah, it's essentially printing money. Especially if you look at the volume too. But now that's not net, that's gross margin. They still have expenses that they have that have to come out of that. Things like the warehouse rental costs, the machines that they use to press the mm-hmm. discs or the CDs or the tapes or whatever. They still have to pay employees. They still have to pay shipping and all of that. So that's gross margin. But just look at just yep. the pure volume on top oh, of that. Oh yeah, that's the point. Yeah. Volume would overcome everything except for distribution. Yeah. So by comparison, so he said that the, he estimated that Columbia House made $7.20 on each disc sold, that retail stores were hard pressed to make a margin upwards of $6 per sold disc. Sure. Yeah. Because they're on a much smaller scale. Yeah. Yeah. So their model was yielding them another, what, another 10% or so on their revenue. So it's easy to see now. Now in hindsight, I didn't realize they weren't paying royalties on the freebies, that they were printing their own records, that they had a stranglehold in the market. Now I see they weren't doing me any favors by sending me eight records for a penny. They were just hooking right. me into what ultimately was making them a boatload of cash. I remember the other little scam, less scam, I should say, but the thing you, they don't tell you about <laughs> is because every now and then they'd have like, they run, they run sales of records like, oh, buy you know these three albums for X dollars. This is after you got your initial 12 and you buy it, but the sales did not did count not apply towards, towards, exactly. towards your commitment. The sales did not count towards <laughs> yep. your thing. So I'm like, well, like, what a bargain. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the sale on their price. Many times the sales were not as good a price as what you could get in the stores, mm-hmm. but you had it in your hand and it was easy and it came to your doorstep. So if you could go back, George, if, if you had this genius idea and you were around in 1955, sure. how much of a genius would you have been to calculate this as a, a method of distributing music? I mean, you're a total genius. You're Bill Gates of the record industry at that point. Depending upon when you talk about him, some people say he's a, you know, a jerk and some people say he's a genius and everything. Business-wise, the man was a genius. He came up with a way to get his operating system out there that nobody else thought of, and he forced companies to do what he wanted that was the most profitable for him and his company. That's exactly what Columbia House did, and I know that it feels crappy and it feels slimy (laughs) on the consumer side of it, but you can't argue that you got something of value for an overall cheaper price than you would have for buying the exact same things that you would have had to drive to a store and go get, and instead it was shipped to your house. So you received 
received convenience tax money. And it's a genius win-win scenario, even though on your side as the consumer, it feels like a loss. Mm-hmm. Man. But boy, it sure felt good when that box came with the free ones, didn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could listen to it fast enough. And it felt worse when the bill came for the non-free ones. Oh, yeah. Or you got to win the bill that you didn't want. You're like, oh, fuck, I forgot to send that card back. <laughs> yep. Damn it. I knew I was supposed to do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it was invariably sitting in your passenger seat of your car and you meant to drop it off at the post office. <laughs> yeah. And then the next time you go to the post office, we've got a package for you. So in your hand, you're holding both the card you forgot to mail and the package you didn't want. Oh, no. Yep. <laughs> Direct correlation. <laughs> Cause and effect. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Clark. Have I got music for you. 13 of your favorite records or tapes for one penny when you join the Columbia Record and Tape Club. If you've never taken advantage of a music club before, believe me, this is your golden opportunity. Look for the ad in TV Guide, fill in the gold box, and have you got music. We've established that Columbia House was a marketing genius. They came up with something that clearly made them boatloads of cash and doing better than the retail stores were doing. They weren't alone, though. No. They were not the only get more than you think you're getting for overpriced value later schemes. Uh, and the first one that has a, I have direct correlation to my life, was Time Life Books. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love their tagline. <laughs> Read the book. Coincidence? Read the book. <laughs> Read the book. Oh, yeah. I'm going to get to the mysteries of the unknown. That's my favorite. Anyway, Time Life, founded by Time Incorporated in 1961, is a book marketing division, of course, from Time and Life magazines. They gained fame as a bookseller of series that would be mailed to your household, monthly installments, like a book sales club, like the record club. Yeah. The publisher, Jerome Hardy, declared early on that the uh, publisher, Time Life, would succeed through a strategy to give the customer more than he has any right to expect. Wow. <laughs> That's he's full of himself. He We're is giving you more than you have any right to expect. Yeah. So take it. You take it. You like it. Yeah. And pay us. <laughs> so they put out series like, like Life Nature Library, mm-hmm. The Third Reich, The Civil War, Great Ships, things like that. Oh, I remember the Civil War went on TV. Yeah. And yeah. my personal favorite, Mysteries of the Unknown. Mm. Coincidence? Mm. Read the book. <laughs> There's like, like oh. one on like ghosts and one on. Yes. You know. Yes. So Mysteries of the Unknown that. So I have a quick personal kind of anecdote with those. When I was a youngster, probably 17, 18, whatever, I started subscribing to the Mysteries of the Unknown because they were one about the pyramids and one about witches and one about ghosts and one about aliens. And and they were beautiful books. They were like, they had like foil pressed pages and they were, but it was all like in search of. It's like nothing in this book is absolutely corroborated. It's all just theories because they're paranormal stuff. And I got so behind. You got nothing for free with this. Like you got the first one, one for like $5 and every other one was like $25 for these books. I owed them so many hundreds of dollars. They stopped shipment. They called a collection company on me. I ruined my credit in my early 20s because these books did it to me because I love them. I wouldn't I wouldn't send back the cards they don't sending it because I'm you a completionist. I want all of them. And so I repaired my credit and it wasn't until about 20 years ago that I finally found a lot. Someone had all 33 books. I now own the entire series. I bought <laughs> them after really? the fact. I do. Every one Man. of Mysteries of the Unknown books. They're great to have. I was thinking have. that I'm going to go looking on eBay to see if anybody's got the whole set for sale because, yeah, I never got any of them, but I always so wanted good. one. They're dumb. They're stupid. They're all just yeah. right. They're, they're just full of like propaganda and maybe this is true. Yeah. I mean, there's no way I'm going to read them all. I'm just no. going to put them on a shelf and they're going to look pretty. They do look pretty. Yeah, Time 
Wife was one of these other similar schemes, easy to get underwater. Another one that comes to mind probably that you might remember is the Publisher's Clearinghouse. Oh, yeah. They're still around. They're still walking they, around they're not gone. people checks. Yeah. Yep. Their thing wasn't books or records. Their thing was magazines. Yeah. And only like probably like 10 prime magazines and all the other <laughs> ones lots, were like lots of dumb yeah. magazines. Like cats who walk through puddles. Weekly. <laughs> yeah. Or some <laughs> crap. <laughs> so uh, PCH was founded in 1953 by a former manager of a door-to-door sales team for magazine subscriptions. Oh, that makes sense. So he yeah. started a company in his basement with the help of his wife and daughter. Nice. So initially he said door-to-door is not efficient. So he said, I'm going to start by mailing out. So the first mailings, he sent out 10,000 envelopes from his home offering 20 different magazine subscriptions and he got 100 orders back. He's like, huh, this makes sense. So well, he figured out the number funnel for his business. There you yeah. Go. So within a few years, he moved out of his basement into an office building, hired a staff in 1969. The company revenue had grown to $50 million by 1981 and $100 million wow. by 88. And wow. now like nothing by 2020 <laughs> because nobody, who's buying magazines in print anymore? Like, Doctor's offices, yeah. that's yeah. it, right? Well, you said, George. So in 67, they started their sweepstakes to increase subscription. Right. Initially, they saw Reader's Digest doing this, and they're like, okay. So initially, you'd get a prize from 25 cents to $10. You had a one in 10 chance of winning. Oh, okay. And that All was right. kind of cool. It was like, it was very much like a lottery almost, it felt like. Sure. And then they increased that based on the response, and they said, okay, here's a prize of $5,000. Okay. And then the grand prize was $250,000. And later, millions of dollars they would that's try to give away. when I was young. I remember a million dollars. That's what yeah. I so early in the 70s, you started seeing the ads. And so you were just talking about the guy with the check would walk up, yeah. right, Mo? Right. Look, he's got balloons and everything. And they're still doing that to this day. I think now it's even, a, I've seen Steve Harvey do those oh, ads. Oh, really? Seriously? Yeah. They're still yeah, doing I'm those. serious. Well, that's because I don't yeah. watch advertisement. I don't watch, and the commercials are carved out of the right. shows I watch. So I don't see those. <laughs> Every now and then I have a sports program that I have to watch. And but you have to watch. watching a few commercials. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember like you do about the Columbia House, George, that the mailer came with all these stickers. Mm, yep. Cut out the stickers and you'd lick it and you'd put it on this big card and if you watch the commercial they go and here's a secret if you watch this ad look for the gold sticker if you put that on your you'll get two more subscriptions yep. for the same price and you felt like you had an insider knowledge and you almost forgot that everyone on the planet knew this secret yeah. but it didn't matter right. you felt like you're getting away with something that's that mentality of this kind of scheme that was like you feel like you're getting more than you're paying for but on the back end you're paying for it well it's all perceived value that's what sales is all about right if I can get you to think there's value in something, I'm more likely to get more money out of you for that. Thing. Oh, sure. You're a snake. You yeah. damn sales guy. <laughs> <laughs> I can fake you out of your money by thinking it's good. <laughs> he's on our no, side. You're, you're, it's you're right. You know, it's you're like, right. Are, you love Dark Tower, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah fact. Not everybody would think that that game is worth $300. You had no hesitation because of the perceived value that you personally have of that game. That's why you think it's worth $300. The physical parts in the app and everything oh, no, not probably boil down to like 10 bucks. Yeah, you're paying for the labor and the work and exactly. the packaging and all the the, 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 and the, the entire perceived piece. value, the, yeah. what it means okay. to you. And that's exactly what they were doing. I'm not a snake. Yeah, like I'm just pointing value. that out to <laughs> the you. That's sucker all. value. I'm sorry. They say that loud. <laughs> sucker value. You did. Yes. <laughs> so you might remember the scam, well, the alleged scam. In 92, thousands of discarded sweepstake entries from contestants who had not bought any magazine subscriptions were found in the company's trash bin. <laughs> right, the no purchase necessary thing. They I asserted remember that you, yeah. you could win just by sending in the card. PCH asserted that that was done by a disgruntled employee in their mail processing. Yeah, but right. a class action lawsuit ensued and PCH settled by giving discarded entrants a second chance to win. 
Yay. Hmm. So yeah, Yay. we'll put you back in the tumbler. We'll put it in the other dumpster on the other side of the building. <laughs> yeah. The other dumpster. <laughs> and Rita's like, no, no, no. We promise. We gave you a second yeah, really? chance. Yeah. You just didn't win yeah. again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so who else? So we have obviously Columbia House, Time Life Books, Publishers Clearing. Yeah. I mean, the one that I have personal experience with is Disney, arguably. Oh, sure. Uh, Disney. Oh, with all the, their backlog of same movies. Same system with their backlog of movies, their animated tales. In the 80s and 90s, really, mostly in the 90s that I know from personal experience, they would send you an amount of VHS tapes of their animated films. Now, my wife got wholeheartedly sucked into this medium. So she has probably, I don't know, 50 of these VHS tapes, maybe 60, where she would just get them every month because <laughs> she, she got through the Disney club. Animated, yeah. oh, wow. She got through the club. It's even like, I don't know if this is true for Columbia House. I'm sure it's not true for PCH, but for Disney, there are some of these covers that came out on these VHS tapes that are now collectible and desirable because they had misprints or the image wasn't approved or something like that. And so the it was, only it was unique way you to could the get club. them was through this Disney club. Oh, yeah. And so there's not that many of them out there because Disney repulled them and like destroyed the title, them and you know, everything. Lady is a tramp. Wait, wait. <laughs> right. no, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I know that there's an aftermarket for these tapes, even though VHS is pretty much a dead format at this point, but Just she still the, has the piece, the collector piece. Yeah, yeah and she won't get rid of them. She still, I'm like, honey, we don't have a VHS to play them anymore. I don't care. I'm <laughs> not okay. getting rid of them. They're the mine. one I got sucked into was a uh, science fiction and fantasy book club, which was also very, that. It was yeah. the same yeah. thing. Yeah, which sure. is, oh, you got like 10 books for a dollar. And then they sent you the cards and you went and you got these big ass packages. You're like, oh, crap, I forgot to send oh, this no. bag. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> Usually there were like collections of books like, oh, it's the entire of this series and a giant honking book that was really badly bound. So if you opened it too many times, the pages oh, fell no. out. Sure. So now yeah. now you know, just like we learned from Columbia, they were printing their own yeah. compilations. And so they, it, the it was cutting too. down a cost. Yeah. 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 So yeah. definitely scamming. Genius. Evil genius. Evil. Evil. <laughs> Mo is just butt hurt by this format. I think I think he got in trouble with oh, the I money did. more than any of us did, John. I think there's a yeah. special circle in hell for these people. Like with the <laughs> along with the guy who invented the clamshell packaging that, that wow. cuts the crap out of your hands so you don't do it right. Yeah. Mo has got to be tortured every day living in such a consumer society and hating being a consumer so much. Yeah, it's a love-hate thing. <laughs> some from column A, some from column B. <laughs> to experience mysteries of the unknown, examine your first volume, Mystic Places, for 10 days free. Then decide if you want to dismiss it. To order your first book, Mystic Places, call 1-800-532-1100. Examine it for 10 days. Keep it a pay just $12.99 plus $2.98 shipping and handling. Other books will follow, one about every other month. Keep only the ones you want. Cancel at any time. All good things, even if they're uh, things that piss off Mo, must come to an end. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the rise of the internet, you know, had an impact, but it, it actually lasted some into the life of the internet and you know, ease of accessing this kind of content, this media. In 2005, longtime competitor to Columbia House, BMG, purchased Columbia House and consolidated their operations, so they were one big thing for a while. In 2008, they were acquired by a private investment company. Really? And the name was changed again to Direct Brands, and so the writing was on the wall hmm. then. Yeah. 
Direct Brands shut down their operations in mid-2009. They still use Columbia House as a brand to market things, selling DVDs and Blu-ray and stuff. But the, the whole, you know, get a bunch of movies or records for a penny or a dollar, that's gone. They don't do that any longer. Direct Brands was even trying to use that negative option billing thing, but they got a lot of pressure in Canada. So they ceased operations entirely in 2010. All staff dismissed. U.S. operations continued. Damn though. Canadians ruin everything for everybody. No, it's it's beauty, eh? It's all good, eh? <laughs> Mo would say they're onto something that, hey, this reverse billing yeah. thing is kind of scammy. Mo was like, thank you, Canada, for saving me from myself. Exactly. Exactly. From yourself. Yeah. Wrote that. <laughs> yeah. In 2012, the all of it remaining was sold to another holding company. 2013, they changed their name again. Anyway, it's basically the name has been juggled around. The actual practice of this kind of sending things to you for almost nothing and the billing in the, on the back end has gone away. You got to question these investors. Who the hell still sees value Who's buying that? in this right. name, right? Maybe oh, it's just man. banking on the literal the name, having Columbia House and BMG in your, like, like I own the name cool of name. this. But. I want to use it to create a bicycle. Here's right. 12 million. <laughs> and they haven't done anything with it. So, <laughs> you know, as we wind up this backtrack about Columbia House and all these kind of record things, I wanted to kind of recap in our own memories kind of what you remember about doing it. I mean, one, of course, that I think everybody probably shares, or maybe I'm the asshole, we'll see, is uh, creating fake names to take repeated <laughs> advantage of the 10 movies for a penny or 10 records for a penny. I've done that with emails. It wasn't yeah. just me, right? It wasn't just me. No. no. Okay. I, I'm trying to remember how many free months of the UFC fight pass I got with the different emails that I created <laughs> just for that. Like, get a free month of WWE, uh, you know, just sign up with your email. Okay. Here's another email at you. George number one. <laughs> George number Number two, blah, blah, blah. You do that today with Netflix or with your, you know, access, you know, free trials and kind of things. But I think that I wasn't an evil genius. I think everybody figured out the problem with that that we figured out later was after you got three or four sets, you had entered into three or four agreements to buy the full price ones right. later. And you, you still figured that out. Well, but now, have you seen this thing of uh, 10 minute credit cards that's out there? Oh, yeah. You use them and they dissolve? Yeah, they dissolve after a while. So now you can sign up with what these. Yeah, they're these dissolvable the credit cards that go away. They're not attached to your bank at all. Mm -hmm. And so you just use that number that they assign to your email. So you sign up with a fake email on that thing, assign that number to yourself. When you go to sign up for one of these services, you have a credit card and an email that'll eventually be wiped away and you don't have to worry about wow. it. I shouldn't have told Mo that. That <laughs> oh, was no. probably a mistake. That, that could backfire. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes a science fiction book club all over again. Yeah, <laughs> so why was it we just couldn't send in the damn card? So first, wasn't it postage paid or did you have to put a stamp on it? I, I remember putting a stamp I on it. I remember having to put yeah, a stamp on it. I think you had to put yeah. a stamp on it. That was probably the first barrier because you take it out, you had to check yes or no. Why would you ever check yes? You're going to get it for right. free. So you need to check no, you need to put a stamp on it and throw it in the box. Why couldn't we do that one simple thing? I mean, for me, I think it was the perception of how you mailed things was different at that point. So I remember you would receive mail in your your mailbox and you would just pick it up and take it in the house. But if you wanted to send a letter, you felt like you had to go to the post office to send that letter. Oftentimes, most people didn't think about just sticking the letter in their box and putting up the little flag unless you lived in like hmm. a rural community right. or something like that. Yeah. So there was a barrier of, I don't feel like driving down to the post office today. See, the thing that got me was that because it was a card you were sending back, mm -hmm. yeah. you didn't have to have like a full first class stamp. There was cheaper stamps you could use. Right. <laughs> I remember having a philosophical issue of putting a full stamp on it. <laughs> like don't have a 
postage stamp for a postcard, and I don't want to spend the full price right. stamp. So instead, I wound up getting like a record. Yeah. And so you were stuck in the middle. And I go to post office, I buy a book of the postcard stamps, and then they were gone, and I'd be like, oh crap. Because I knew the next three, I were not going to send it. <laughs> like a few months later, the postage would go up on a postcard, and you were stuck with all these one penny all shy the, stamps. The cheap stamps. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. Yeah, they totally did. If they'd done postage paid, I bet I would have sent it in more often, but that's not in their best interest. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? No, of course not. Yeah. I, I, I guess the last thing I want to ask you kind of is I had on my list to ask you, what do you think of this model? I think we know what mm-hmm. Mo thinks of this model. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's genius. E- evil genius, though. Evil genius. Yeah. What did you think of it at the time? How how aware were you of the scheme and how it worked? Did, did it feel like a good deal at the time? Did you think you're getting ripped off at the time? Oh, I thought it was an amazing deal. It seemed too good to be true. Yeah. What did you, George, what did you think? So first, I assume you took part in this at least once or twice or five times. I actually did not. No, not really? You never time. actually filled in? No. I wanted to. When I was young, like I said, I would put the little stamps on the 10 spaces and give it to my mom and she would give it to my dad. My dad would say, <laughs> yeah, I'll send it in for you. Just wait for right. your stuff by the mailbox until tonight. He filed yeah. it with the Publishers Clearinghouse non-purchase cards, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, exactly. It went right in the hopper. So it wasn't for lack of trying. I just never got a chance to. And then when I got older, I was spending my money on other things. I wasn't really into magazines. I wasn't really into and music and stuff albums like and music and stuff like that. I was spending it on other stuff. So yeah, I never got into any of those type of subscription services. I don't think I started really with subscription style services until the advent of the internet. Hmm. Yeah. I know I did it a couple of times and it just because it seemed like a great deal. I, in the back of my head, I knew they were going to get me because there's no such thing as a free lunch, you know? Right. Sure. But it's still it's like, well, but I'm going to get these free right now. It feels good. It's that immediate. It's why credit yeah. cards, you know, are a trap for a lot of people in low incomes because I can have it now, even though I'm building up a problem for myself later, instant gratification. I can have it now for cheaper free. Yeah, absolutely. Probably the last thing I want to ask is, do you think it could work again today? If somebody tried to duplicate this with music, CDs or whatever, do you think it could work again? I, I think huh. we're past that point now. Yeah. Although I can see it working. I mean, I look now, I think they do something similar, but like when you look at like video games today, a lot of like you get the game for free, but if you want to get this add on, it costs you. Mm-hmm. If you want to get this, it costs yeah. you, you know? And to me, it's kind but of that's a similar all opt-in stuff. It's not this that's opt-out true, true. It is, it yeah. is opt-in. Yeah. Yeah. true. I don't think, I mean, opt-out, the thing that we have closest to it isn't centered around music at all. It's more, I mean, it kind of is because streaming services, some of them are music-based streaming services. But as we talked about earlier, I think those free trials are the closest thing we have to that. Mm -hmm. But it's still not similar enough to make me say that it's what was back then is going to work now because it's a whole different world. Yeah, I don't don't think there's enough demand for that kind of physical media delivered to your house that even if you try to resurrect it today with the same model, there's just you don't have the market. There's too many other ways to get what you want. There is a larger market for albums now. There are millennials that desperately collect vinyl and they're printing new vinyl now because, you know, there's that resurgence thing. But yeah, I don't see that generation being sucked in. No like ours because they have too much information now. And they, I'd be afraid to order vinyl things. through the mail anyway because that might get yeah. They now have <laughs> podcasts telling them what a bad deal it is. <laughs> As a public service of Gen X grown up, <laughs> don't, don't do it. it. People who went through it and got suckered. And I still remember like toward the end of one of the subscriptions, having to buy like the worst freaking album for so much money. Yeah. Mo must yeah. belong to the Columbia House support group somewhere. He goes to meetings <laughs> right. like once a month and they have orange juice and coffee in the corner and they're sitting in a little yeah, we semi-circle have a picture of the guy with that started it. We, we have a picture of the guy up in a dartboard and we're throwing darts at it all day. Yeah. Hi, I'm Mo. <laughs> I'm a recovering sci-fi book club addict. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Mo. Hey, Mo. Yeah. So you're on your way to buy some music albums. 
How much money do you have? Only a penny? You're kidding. That won't buy a thing at the store. But here, open this gold box. Just one penny buys one, two, three, keep going. Thirteen tapes or thirteen records of your choice when you join the Columbia Record and Tape Club. If there was anything in this show you'd like to learn more about, the show notes which accompany each episode are full of links to click and explore. Catch up on past episodes and get pinged every time a new one's released by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. And you know, iTunes reviews help more than you know, so if you haven't yet, please rate and review us in the iTunes app. And if you have a friend who isn't yet listening, why not? Tell them about us, they'll thank you later. You're our fourth listener, and we'd love to read your emails right here on the show, so hit us up at podcast at genxgrownup.com. And finally, Gen X Grown Up is more than just this podcast. Our YouTube channel has hundreds of videos ready for you to enjoy, plus you can find our entire body of work on genxgrownup.com. You know, the Gen X Grown Up podcast does not require you to spend a penny for 10 or 12 or 50 episodes. They all come to you for free, but the Columbia House Record Club is no longer around and you can't even give them your penny any longer. I would like them to have to send a postcard into us, though. That'd be a awesome. A postcard would be nice. Yeah. If, they did, well, we if you don't send us a postcard, we'll send you a bill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mo wants to become the very snakes he abhors. Good job, Mo. Be what you fear. Giving in. But, you know, there is a group of people who believe in us well enough to support us financially. And that's our patrons over on Patreon. Who am I talking about? Here it goes. <gasps> I'm talking about you. T2, Jonathan H. Stubaka, Thomas, Stian, Slowmo, Dana, Gary, Dan, Chad, Adam, Levi, Mike C, Greg Z, Davis, Keith, Tony, Stu Monkey, Mike R, Marcus, Mark, Agile, Greg L, and Blast It or Stash It. These are all folks who have committed to us financially over on Patreon. They give us a few bucks a month to help keep the lights on here on the podcast, the YouTube channel, and over on the website. We could not be more gracious or humbled by your belief in us. If you would like to join them, George, how would someone go about becoming a patron of Gen X Grown Up? Oh my goodness. Let me think. I believe you can head over to www.patreon.com slash genxgrownup, and there would be some way that you could click a button, enter a credit card number, and send me all your money. You don't oh. even have to lick a stamp no, to us, do it. Us, us, Right. No, it's just me. It's just George. It's just me. <laughs> just, there's no stickers to cut out. There's no cards to send back. There's some uh, bonus stuff to be had, some background material, some swag at different levels. If you're interested at all, we hope you consider joining us and supporting us. And we love those of you who already do. And if you find the gold sticker and put it in the corner of the website, <laughs> you'll get an extra bonus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we will be back in two weeks with another backtrack, but next week with a regular edition of our show. Until that time, I am John George. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, sir. Mo, you know I appreciate you. Always fun, man. And fourth listeners, it's you we appreciate, though, most of all. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. See you guys. Take care, everybody. Gen X Grown Up is a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're also an affiliate of the Geeks Worldwide Radio Network. You can check them out at the GWW.com. All right, so we made it through. Good job, everyone. Wrap up. It's kind of a small topic, and we kind of expanded it into a larger show, so that's awesome. Da-da. All right, call it time. I think that's our superpower. That's our superpower, yeah. <laughs> You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, 
as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.